Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today I'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the decisive offensive the Russians are mobilising for to take the Donbass and encircle the Ukrainian army in the east. Having lost up to a third of their combat power so far, if the Russians fail to secure the territory they need to claim some kind of victory, then Ukraine will be in a stronger position to bargain for a settlement, assuming Putin is capable of facing the reality of a defeat. Joining us is Keith Darden, a professor in the School of International Service at American University, where his research focuses on nationalism, state-building, and the politics of Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia. His forthcoming book is Resisting Occupation in Eurasia. Then we'll speak with the lawyer leading the fight to have the insurrectionist members of Congress taken off the ballots for re-election in November under a provision of the 14th Amendment that clearly states, quote, No person shall hold any office, civil or military, under the United States, having previously taken an oath to support the Constitution, had then engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same, or given aid and comfort to the enemies thereof. Joining us is Ron Fine, the legal director for Free Speech for People, and a constitutional lawyer who is the co-author of The Constitution Demands It, the case for the impeachment of Donald Trump, and has already sued to get Madison Cawthorn and Marjorie Taylor Greene off the ballots in North Carolina and Georgia, and is part of a lawsuit on behalf of Arizona voters challenging the eligibility of Congressman Paul Gosar and Andy Biggs and State Representative Mark Fincham, who was running for Arizona Secretary of State with Trump's backing, to appear on the 2022 ballot. Then finally, we'll look into the consequences of the failure to convict members of the Wolverine Watchmen militia in Michigan, who had plotted to kidnap and kill Governor Whitmer, who said in response to the acquittals, quote, Today, Michiganders and Americans, especially our children, are living through the normalization of political violence. Joining us is David Nywert, an award-winning journalist, author, and expert on American right-wing extremism, whose books include The Eliminationists, How Hate Talk Radicalized the American Right, and Alt-Right America, the Rise of the Radical Right in the Age of Trump, and his latest book is Red Pill, Blue Pill, How to Counteract the Conspiracy Theories That Are Killing Us. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Keith Darden, who's a professor in the School of International Service at American University, where his research focuses on nationalism, state-building, and the politics of Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia. And his forthcoming book is Resisting Occupation in Eurasia. Welcome to Background Briefing, Keith Darden. Thanks, Ian. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Well, thanks for joining us. And there's some extraordinary reports coming out. According to the Ukrainian military, the Russians, they have taken out 50 of the 120 Russian battalion tactical groups deployed in Ukraine. 
and Russia has only 170 of these tactical groups. So it's about a third, right, of Russia's military. And I believe that the offensive that's underway now, really, you know, they've sort of cobbled together, repaired a lot of equipment. But my understanding is that they're running out of equipment, particularly tanks and, and armored personnel carriers. What, what are you learning? Yes, I think I mean, both sides have lost a lot of equipment. Uh, and the Russian side has had to reform a series of battalion tactical groups to focus on the, the war in the Donbass. And so we'll see, you know, everyone seems to think that the Russians have one big push left in them uh, in the short term. And then they'll have to do some significant uh, uh, supply for a, for a more longer term engagement. So this would be the push would be what <clears throat> to take all of uh, the Donbass? Yes, to encircle the Ukrainian forces that were on the old line of contact uh, with the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics, the separatist republics that uh, had Russian-led forces uh, up until uh, February of, of this year when the Russian military became more directly engaged. And if they fail, I mean, we don't know the extent of uh, Ukrainian casualties so far, do we? No, we don't really have a good idea of Ukrainian casualties or their equipment losses. But if we can assume that they had significant losses in their heavy armor, much as the Russians have. So is there stuff coming in? They are I running mean, low as well. Uh, but I, I mean, there are Czech uh, tanks coming in, apparently. But NATO has, uh, you know, the Germans have just announced that they're not going to be sending uh, their armored vehicles to Ukraine. And so uh, a lot of what what might have come in from NATO stockpiles, uh, and much of that is already outdated equipment that was going to be uh, transferred out of service anyway, um, isn't going to make it to the conflict in in the next month or so, which is really when it's most most needed. Well, one of the things I find puzzling is that President Biden was very proactive in releasing a lot of intelligence about Putin's real intentions when he was lying about not invading Ukraine. So why during that period when the Biden administration and U.S. intelligence knew what Putin was up to, why didn't we supply much more military equipment? We supplied quite a lot. Uh, and I think we supplied military equipment that was consistent with our assumptions about how the war was going to go, which is that the Ukrainian army, regular army, was probably not going to do very well and was going to collapse relatively quickly. So sending in tanks at that time didn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Sending in uh, anti-tank weapons, on the other hand, uh, that small mobile groups could use effectively against Russian armor, that seemed to make quite a lot of sense. And that's something that was done uh, as well as uh, some pretty sophisticated shoulder-powered uh, uh, weaponry against uh, uh, bunkers, as well as anti-aircraft systems, uh, so Stinger missiles. And so it, you, if you think that we were preparing for the Ukrainians to be able to fight an asymmetric conflict, but they did actually quite well in sort of uh, symmetric engagement with Russian forces peer-to-peer, uh, and have shown themselves to be a very effective military. I think we only realized after the fighting had gone on for a couple of weeks that that was the kind of war uh, the Ukrainians were going to be fighting. And that takes a very different set of uh, of tools. Well, 
It's extraordinary the number of casualties that the Russians have taken. We don't have a clear figure on it, but the Ukrainians apparently early in the war offered to turn over 3,000 bodies of Russian soldiers and the Russians rejected the offer. Apparently the Ukrainians have over 7,000 Russian bodies in rail cars and refrigerated trucks. Yeah, I don't know whether we can trust casualty figures from from either side in a conflict like this, because part of, you know, obviously on the Ukrainian side, they want to show that they're inflicting costs on the Russians. They want to show that they're inflicting those costs on the Russians. So uh, I don't think we have a clear sense exactly of of what Russian casualties have been, although the Russian side has acknowledged that they've been substantial. Even the uh, the Kremlin spokesperson, Dmitry Peskov, has said that. So, uh, but the figure is probably upwards of 15,000, uh, maybe not as high as the 19,000 figure that the Ukrainians have cited, but, uh, but, but quite significant. And again, I'm speaking with Keith Darden, who's a professor in the School of International Service at American University, where his research focuses on nationalism, state building, and the politics of Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia. And his forthcoming book is Resisting Occupation in Eurasia. So how have the Ukrainians done in terms of getting the civilians out? I mean, it was absolutely heinous of the Russians to target that railway station where women and children were being evacuated and over 50 were killed. Is that sort of continuing in the face of this Russian offensive? Yes. So Ukrainian civilians have been uh, trying to get out of the eastern areas, uh, the areas that are likely to see a lot of conflict uh, in the next couple of weeks. So uh, Slavyansk and Kramatorsk, um, which are really, uh, you know, those are in the the former Donetsk and Luhansk uh, provinces of Ukraine that Russia is trying to uh, capture now. And so they are likely to see significant fighting. So civilians have been able to leave those areas. Uh, There was the tragic uh, strike on the Kramatorsk railway station, uh, but people are leaving in cars, buses. There is a variety of transport mechanisms getting people out of that area. Uh, You know, it's, I I think, unfortunate the Ukrainian government didn't anticipate some of that uh, for cities like uh, Mariupol uh, in advance. And so we're seeing really devastating civilian losses uh, in areas that the Russians have been under siege from the very beginning of this war. And Putin, uh, of course, is denying these attacks on civilians and civilian casualties. So is the word getting out to the Russian people about what is happening in their name in any form? I mean, it seems like Putin is restoring a kind of Stalinist hold on information. They're even encouraging informants to inform on neighbors who the police are randomly looking at iPhones of young people to see whether they're getting unauthorized information. So is he fighting a losing battle there in terms of the truth, or can you turn that country back into a Stalinist state? Anyways, he's fighting a... Oh, sorry. In many ways, he's fighting a winning battle uh, in the sense that a lot of Russians just don't trust Western media sources. So... We might think, oh, well, you know, the propaganda can't be successful because there's so much information out there. Uh, But the Russian public has learned not to trust the Ukrainian authorities, for example. They've learned not to trust the United States. Uh, And so there's just a much higher level of skepticism, particularly during wartime, of anything that points to Russian atrocities being perpetrated 
in Ukraine. So I think we've actually got an uphill battle to try to get that information to the to the Russian side and to the Russian people, uh, especially since the Kremlin has now cut off much access to the outside world. Uh, and because of the of the sanctions, you uh, Russians have a hard time uh, paying for VPN services that would get them uh, into our information space where they might be able to get that kind of information more easily. So how much has Putin succeeded in creating a kind of uh, proto-fascist state? I mean, uh, the historian Timothy Snyder describes Putin as a proto-fascist who's created a shallow nationalist ideology to justify his continued hold on power. I mean, I'm getting reports from Russia that there's a lot of support for this war based on jingoism and, and propaganda, not unlike what happened uh, with George W. Bush's administration's war in U Iraq in the early stages when they toppled Saddam. There was a kind of popularity across the country and a kind of war euphoria as well. Is that what's happening in Russia? I don't think anybody would describe what's happening in Russia as euphoria. So I think it's more uh, closing of the ranks, that they sense that the war is not going as well as anticipated. Uh, but they also feel, the elite in particular feels, that the, that the sanctions uh, and the threat to Russia may well be existential. And so, you know, you'll hear Russians say, for example, you know, you, you don't you don't shoot the captain when the ship is sinking. Uh, and so there's not really a sense that uh, they, they're aware that the ship is sinking. They're aware that this war is not going very well for them uh, and they're not feeling euphoric about it. Uh, but at the same time, uh, they seem to be loyal to Russia uh, as a state and feel that Russia as a state needs to make some success out of this imminent failure. But in um, their media, and particularly coming from some of their more prominent propagandists, there's been a, a rather sinister shift in the narrative. Initially, it was, we're going to denazify the country and remove its government, which are a bunch of Nazis, even if Zelensky, of course, is Jewish himself. That was the narrative. Now the narrative seems to be suggesting that because they've met with such resistance, it's not just the government who are Nazis, it's the entire population. And is that something that we should be concerned about? There's a whiff of genocide there. Yes, there's more than a whiff of genocide there. And it's clear that if the Russians were militarily successful in seizing large parts of Ukrainian territory and major cities, uh, that they would be facing resistance and would react to that resistance with, uh, with brutal violence. Uh, but I think that's all the more reason just to, you know, keep the supplies going. The war is not going well for the Russian side. Uh, and so I think maintaining Ukraine's sovereign control over as much of its territory as possible and evacuating civilian populations from the areas that can't be kept under Ukrainian control has to be the strategy at this point for avoiding uh, for avoiding a genocide. So the Russian people can't stop Putin. Only the Ukrainian people can stop him, and they can only do that with their depleting ranks. And how much are we supporting them? As much as we can, I guess, but maybe that's not enough. I don't think, if you take Tim Snyder's version of Putin, which I think is a pretty accurate one, you can't negotiate with this guy, right? You have to defeat him. I think you could make 
temporary negotiations. In other words, uh, he can't he can't make the impossible happen. He can't make a failing war go well. So I think it, you know, the Ukrainian side, they are being depleted, but at the same time, they've probably had an increase in personnel for their for their forces through volunteers, through the general call up of uh, of fighting age men that is greatly in excess of their personnel losses. And that's not true for the Russian side. So the Ukrainians, because they're fighting for their own territory and because they have gone through a full scale mobilization, in many ways, they are better equipped uh, to put down the Russian threat than than anybody else at this point. And so even if you take the view that that Putin has gone full fascist uh, and that uh, you know Russia is well on its way to establishing a fascist regime that could commit genocide in Ukraine. I don't. I don't think that uh, we can do too much more uh, than assist the Ukrainians in preventing that regime from encroaching deeper onto their territory at this point. And I actually have some hope that Ukraine can hold out longer, longer than the Russians can, uh, than longer than the Russians can mobilize an offensive. And so that they're probably best equipped with our assistance uh, to put down the threat of of whatever type of regime Putin would be able to impose on this part of the world. So just in the last couple of minutes, then, Keith Darden, uh, Russia has not called up its reservists, right? Putin doesn't want to send that signal that they're in that much trouble. Is that what's going on? Exactly. So. If you look at the the voices on the extreme right uh, in Russia, the sort of true fascist imperialist factions, they're extremely upset with the Russian government, with Putin personally, for not having done a full mobilization and mobilized a real war as they see it. And they think that was what was necessary in this case in order to achieve some kind of victory. So they actually are anticipating a Russian loss uh, in this, uh, even in the struggle just to control the Donbass. And so Putin has been very resistant to call this a war uh, and to take the steps that would be necessary from a military standpoint uh, to defeat the Ukrainian military. And so that failure uh, is very likely going to be uh, to to be a Ukrainian success. And there could be some problems domestically for Putin, right? From that, yes, right from the far right. So if the far yeah, right from takes the far over. Right, as well as the youth. The youth don't necessarily seem to be behind this war. Uh, if you look at popular uh, sort of figures in the music or entertainment industry, they're often voicing their opposition to the war. And to the extent that that gives us some insight into where the young fighting age you know, Russian mindset is, it's certainly not going to be eager to uh, be called up to do military service in Ukraine. Well, Keith Darden, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Keith Darden, who's a professor in the School of International Service at American University, where his research focuses on nationalism, state building, and the politics of Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia. And his forthcoming book is Resisting Occupation in Eurasia. We're going to take a brief station break and back speaking with a lawyer leading to the fight to have the insurrectionist members of Congress taken off the ballots for re-election in November.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Ron Fine, a legal director for Free Speech for People and a constitutional lawyer who previously served as an assistant regional counsel in the United States Environmental Protection Agency, where he received the National Gold Medal for Exceptional Service. He's the co-author of The Constitution Demands It, the case for the impeachment of Donald Trump, and is a part of a lawsuit on behalf of Arizona voters challenging the eligibility of Congressman Paul Gosar and Andy Biggs and State Representative Mark Fincham, who is running for Arizona Secretary of State with Trump's backing, challenging them to appear on the 2022 ballot. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ron Fine. Thank you. It's a pleasure to join you. Well, thanks for joining us. And the Constitution of the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, Section 3, says that no person shall hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath to support the Constitution, had then engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. So that is what is at stake here. And uh, it's not just what you're doing in Arizona, but you've got a case also you're involved with in Georgia with Marjorie Taylor Greene, and you'd been previously involved in a case in North Carolina with uh, Madison Cawthorn. That's right. And in fact, the uh, Georgia case is set for a hearing on uh, this Wednesday. And the Cawthorn case, although we uh, did suffer a temporary setback, has been set for an expedited appeal. So let's talk about the first one then, North Carolina. It was a Trump-appointed judge who was both controversial and considered unqualified, Richard Myers II, uh, who ruled against you in that. He cited the Amnesty Act of 1872. How does that play against the 14th Amendment? It really shouldn't in this case. And, and to be clear, we didn't seek to present this in federal court. We filed a candidacy challenge in the North Carolina State Board of Elections, which is how you challenge candidate eligibility in North Carolina. And then Madison Cawthorn ran to federal court to try and block that state proceeding. And what Judge Myers, who is the federal judge, said is that the 1872 Amnesty Act, which was passed by Congress to uh, allow uh, ex-Confederates to be able to once again hold public office, uh, in fact, also applied to all future insurrections by insurrectionists who had not yet been born and wouldn't be born for over a century. And that's just an absurd ruling. So is this then a case where the 14th Amendment, Section 3, is paramount? That's right. The 14th Amendment was passed to apply to future insurrections. They could have written it so that it only applied to the Civil War, but they deliberately wrote it to apply to future insurrections against the United States. Fortunately, we haven't really had very many of those uh, until January 6th, but the 1872 Amnesty Act was designed to deal with ex-Confederates. It was not intended to nullify Section 3 of the 14th Amendment for all time. So that's being challenged, right? That's right. We appealed and the Court of Appeals granted us an expedited briefing schedule, meaning that it's put it on a fast track. And within uh, less than a month from today, we'll have completed all briefing and oral argument and should have a decision from the Court of Appeals in time for the North Carolina primary. And that's in time for whether or not he gets on the ballot, uh, Madison Cawthorn? 
Well, unfortunately, his name has already been printed on the ballots. But if the Court of Appeals agrees with us that the 1872 Amnesty Act does not apply to Madison Cawthorn, then we can go back to the North Carolina State Board of Elections and have our day in court. Because we understand that Madison Cawthorn has the right to defend himself in this proceeding, but we haven't yet had a chance to demonstrate in court why he uh, met the standard for engaging in insurrection. And that's what we hope to do. So moving to Georgia with the very controversial uh, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, federal judge Amy Totenberg of the North, Northern District of Georgia more or less hinted that she would allow a challenge to proceed, and it could happen on Monday. Is that right? We filed again in the uh, Georgia state candidacy challenge process, and once again, Marjorie Taylor Greene ran to federal court to try and block that process. Uh, Unfortunately for her, it seems that uh, Judge Totenberg, who uh, was assigned to hear her federal challenge, is less likely than uh, Judge Myers was in North Carolina to block the process. And so, well, as of Sunday, I can't predict exactly how Judge Totenberg will rule, but it sure looks like she is not going to be as uh, likely as Judge Myers was to try and protect Marjorie Taylor Greene from facing even having to stand up and explain why she was involved in the January 6th uprising. And it's not just you, right, that's suing. Aren't there voters in the districts that have standing? Well, to be very clear, Free Speech for People is acting as the lawyers for a group of voters uh, who have the right under the law of, of all of these states to, to bring challenges to candidate eligibility. We're working with uh, local law firm partners as well, and we're very honored to represent these voters in bringing this important constitutional challenge. And again, I'm speaking with Ron Fine, who's a legal director for Free Speech for People and a constitutional lawyer who previously served as assistant regional counsel in the United States Environmental Protection Agency, where he received the National Gold Medal for Exceptional Service. He's the co-author of The Constitution Demands It, the case for the impeachment of Donald Trump, and is part of a lawsuit on behalf of Arizona voters challenging the eligibility of Congressman Paul Gosar and Andy Biggs and State Representative Mark Fincham, who is running for Arizona Secretary of State with Trump's backing, challenging them to appear on the 2022 ballot. So let's move to Arizona then, Ron. So again, you've got local voters, you're working on their behalf. Most of these people, I mean, Andy Biggs was at the rally, right? The, the Trump rally on the ellipse? The involvement of all of these uh, men is is shocking how deeply entwined they were with January 6th. Uh, Paul Gosar, as an example, was involved in planning both the uh, pre-attack demonstration on the ellipse and the so-called wild protest at the Capitol itself with the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys, violent extremist groups. Uh, Mark Fincham ran to the Capitol um, actually, I think he took a golf cart um, after he had been warned to stay away from it because of the violence. He instead headed towards it to apparently join in when he heard they were storming the building. And then he lied about it afterwards. And Biggs uh, was working hand in glove with Gosar uh, the entire time. So these guys have been involved in the events leading up to January 6th and January 6th itself. But didn't Gosar and Biggs also try to stop uh, Vice President Pence from upholding the victory of Joe Biden. Didn't they? Arizona came up, I think, early when they go through all the states' counts 
for the uh, Electoral College ballots. That's uh, right. And and it's incredibly disturbing that members of Congress, let alone from uh, their own state, would, of course, uh, vote against certification of the electoral votes from their own states. And, and that's a part of the larger picture. They went even further uh, in you know being involved in planning these uh, outside demonstrations and, and promoting them that uh, led to the attack on the Capitol. And they apparently sought pardons from President Trump afterwards uh, they they didn't get them uh, but they knew that they had been involved uh, in something dirty and that's why they asked for pardons well we don't know exactly what gosa was up to prior to the insurrection a couple of congress people have said that they saw him and his staff and other congress people taking a bunch of uh, of insurrectionists who well, at least they weren't insurrectionists then but they turned out to be insurrectionists on a tour of the Capitol, so they were doing a reconnaissance. One of the shocking things about Gosar, and it's not a secret, is is how closely he's tied in with uh, some of these violent uh, extremist groups. And in fact, he encouraged the insurrection as it was happening. He was uh, posting on uh, a fringe website used by these types of groups, uh, promoting it, uh, even as he was disseminating disinformation uh, to the broader public. So from your point of view, Ron Fine, since you are making these challenges under the Section 3 of the, of the 14th Amendment, how do you deal with, I mean, in other words, if you call for insurrection under the law, is that the same as actually participating in insurrection? In other words, Trump effectively on the ellipse call for an insurrection and he's like the piano player in the whorehouse. I, I, you know, I didn't do anything wrong. And all these people stormed the Capitol. So where's the legal distinction? Because as I read it earlier, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment says there's also or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. I mean, that seems to open the door, doesn't it, from what you're arguing? The aid and comfort uh, concept is is really similar to uh, the idea of engaging. And what we do know is that in the years after the Civil War, which is the last time that this provision was uh, really implemented to any degree, courts looked at this question of what does it mean to engage in insurrection? And we know that the framers of the 14th Amendment were actually not really concerned with the lowly foot soldiers who'd been conscripted into the Confederate Army. They were looking for the political leadership, the people who were driving it. And if you take that analogy and look at it now, it's not just the people who stormed the Capitol uh, themselves who are the object of the concern of the 14th Amendment, but rather the political leaders that pressed forward with it. And that's why the courts that interpreted the Section 3 in the years after the Civil War said that anyone who's who's already met the threshold of having taken an oath to support the Constitution, meaning this is someone who, who should know better and, and they've sworn to defend the Constitution, and then in any way voluntarily gives any type of assistance or aid to the insurrection falls within the scope of this insurrectionist disqualification clause. Well, it is pretty clear, I think to most people it would be pretty clear that these Congress people, and particularly the state representative uh, Mark Bincham, who's uh, running for Arizona Secretary of State with Trump's backing, he of course is one of the Stop the Steal people that have been active 
in many, many states where they're appointing Stop the Steal ideologues to state election boards and canvassing boards. So, I mean, we are heading into a one-party state. It seems like the Republican Party has decided to follow Orban's example in Hungary. So there's a, there's a lot at stake here. It's not exactly what you're doing, but I'm making a broader observation what the challenges are. I know we have this congressional inquiry underway, and we know that if the Republicans take the House in November, as Kevin McCarthy has made clear, they will shut this inquiry down in a heartbeat. So I'm imagining, I'm assuming that the January 6th committee has evidence about Gosar and Biggs and the extent to which they may have helped the insurrectionists both do a reconnaissance before January the 6th and on January the 6th, where clearly, at least on the floor of the House, they made a pitch for Stop the Steal. We don't know everything that the January 6th committee knows, and and I'm, I'm glad that it is moving forward. But what I will say is that our challenges are moving forward faster. Uh, we uh, expect to have representatives uh, Gosar and Biggs and, and Green uh, under cross-examination um, within a week. And we intend to ask them questions under oath about their involvement in January 6th, which is something that the Congressional Committee uh, has not even uh, called them, to my understanding. And so uh, we're prepared to move forward without waiting for anything from the Congressional Committee. So just in the last couple of minutes then, Ron Fine, the opposing attorney, James Buff Jr., who argued for Madison Cawthorn in the North Carolina case and also for uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene in the Georgia case, he seems to be more concerned that he has to hold the line here because he feels at the end of the day what you're doing in challenging the eligibility for these people, these Congress people and the guy that's running for Secretary of State in Arizona to be on the ballot, that this challenge will extend to former President Donald Trump's fitness to office in 2024. Absolutely. Donald Trump is uh, as responsible, if not much more responsible than than anyone for uh, leading to the insurrection of January 6th. And if he does choose to run again in 2024, then we will file multiple challenges in multiple states under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Well, Ron Fine, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And again, I'll be speaking with Ron Fine, who's a legal director for Free Speech for People and a constitutional lawyer who previously served as assistant regional counsel in the United States Environmental Protection Agency, where he received the National Gold Medal for Exceptional Service. He's the co-author of The Constitution Demands It, the case for the impeachment of Donald Trump, and is part of a lawsuit on behalf of Arizona voters challenging the eligibility of Congressman Paul Gosar and Andy Biggs and State Representative Mark Fincham, who is running for Arizona Secretary of State with Trump's backing, challenging them to appear on the 2022 ballot. We can take a brief station break and back looking into the consequences of the failure to convict members of the Wolverine Watchmen militia in Michigan who had plotted to kidnap and kill Governor Whitmer.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, David Nywert, who's a, an award-winning journalist, author, and expert on American right-wing extremism, whose books include The Eliminationists, How Hate Talk Radicalized the American Right, and Alt-America, The Rise of the Radical Right in the Age of Trump. And his latest book is Red Pill, Blue Pill, How to Counteract the Conspiracy Theories That Are Killing Us. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Nywert. Thanks for having me, and good to be back. Well, thanks for joining us. And in spite of a mountain of evidence, after five days of deliberation, a federal jury on Friday acquitted two men involved in planning the kidnapping and murder of Governor Whitmer of Michigan. Daniel Harris, 24, of Lake Orion, and Brandon Cassettis, 34, of Canton, were acquitted on all charges. And the judge declared a mistrial in the cases of Adam Fox, 38, of Wyoming, and Barry Croft, 46, of Bear, Delaware. Fox and Croft are expected to be retried, and Croft is considered the mastermind of this alleged plot. So what do you think happened here, David? <laughs> um, several things. I, I think one of them was that, uh, you know, th- these kinds of cases are um, very tricky, um, because especially when an entrapment defense is raised, um, and it, it just underscores to me, uh, in in a lot of ways, you know the the reality that I know people are impatient with um, the Justice Department's handling of January six events so far, but I think this case really underscores how hard it is to get convictions in these kinds of cases, and that's exactly why. The Justice Department is proceeding very carefully with January 6th because they can't afford to get those cases wrong and they can't afford to let those cases um, go sideways the way this one did. Uh, one of the things that's definitely uh, in play here, though, is uh, juries. Uh, that, that anymore, I think it's uh, becoming an incredibly fraught process for um, anyone to get a conviction on uh, against a right-wing extremist um, because of the ability of extremism to permeate the jury room. Um, and I saw this up close and personal. I, I was a witness in a trial of two uh, alt-writers who shot an anti-fascist in Seattle at a, at a demonstration in January of 2017. Uh, I was standing very close to that anti-fascist when he was shot, and I was involved in the whole situation. And so I wound up being a witness in that case. And uh, uh, my experience with the, with the jury there was that uh, it only takes one or two uh, hardcore uh, Fox News followers to completely screw up the entire jury um, because the, the, the evidence was very clear. In fact, the, the, the one essentially admitted on the, on the stand that she had shot the guy. But the jurors, uh, you know, it wound up being a hung jury. It was eight to four to convict her. Uh, but those four... Jurors who refused to convict her were were hardcore Trumpers who uh, wouldn't who refused to uh, 
ever to that basically what they told each other or told their fellow jurors is that I'm not going to ruin this woman's life because she shot some scum anti-fascist. Um, and you mean Antifa person, right? What's that? An Antifa person, and the, the right wing and Trump have blamed Antifa for the January sixth insurrection. Yeah, yeah. Well, and th that's right. I mean, there's all kinds of uh, stuff that gets thrown has been thrown against the wall about that. Some people there's even Tucker Carlson is promoting the conspiracy theory that they're that uh, the FBI was secretly manipulating everybody. Um, you know, there's there. So that's going to be a very it's going to be very interesting to see. But, you know, so far, all of those, the January 6th cases are largely proceeding, uh, you know, with convictions and and we're not seeing the sorts of problems uh, that they had. But uh, on the other hand, they don't have juries. Uh, they've just had judges so far. Um, so I, I think that the situation with jury trials, uh, with right-wing extremists, is getting extremely fraught. I mean, we saw this, I, I saw this in the 90s when we had a g gang of criminals uh, who uh, bombed, called themselves the Phineas Priests. They were out of, uh, they were a group of Christian identity uh, racist <laughs> white supremacists uh, who wanted to uh, you know bomb uh, Planned Parenthoods and uh, rob banks which is what they did and they finally got caught in Spokane and even even there where we had just open and shut evidence of <laughs> these guys there were two people on the first jury in that case who refused to convict them because they were essentially uh, practicing jury nullification, and uh, you know, so that that wound up being a, a hung jury. They did convict them on the second trial because the prosecutors realized what the problem was. You know, when they went to the for the second jury the second time, and they were more careful about selecting people who were uh, hadn't gone down those rabbit that uh, far right rabbit holes. So. Um, and I don't think these. I don't think the prosecutors in this case in Michigan did it all. Uh, it's pretty clear that there are several jurors who were uh, already inclined to this direction. So I suspect that we had some jurors who just um, refused to. You know, we're not never going to convict these guys, and uh, because you know they they sympathized with them. Well, that's America, isn't it? At least a third of yeah. the country lives in the Fox News bubble of delusion, and a third of the country, more than a third, at least 70-plus percent of Republicans believe that Trump won the last election. So, yeah. that, so in other words, if you get a jury in America, at least a third of them are going to be pro-Trump, and that's enough to cause a mistrial. So Yeah, well, and that's possibly, I, in my opinion, that's something that they should be, you know, screening for in these juries you know right. do you believe that joe biden is <laughs> properly elected because you know that tells you whether or not that person believes in facts and evidence or not and um, again i'm speaking with david nywert who's an award-winning journalist author and expert in american right-wing extremism whose books include the eliminationists how hate talk radicalized the american right and alt-right america the rise of the radical right in the age of trump and his latest book is red pill blue pill how to Counteract the Conspiracy Theories that are Killing Us. So there were two acquittals of 
of Caleb Franks, uh, 27 of Waterford, and yeah. Ty Garbin, 26 of Livingston counting, they did plea deals and they testified against these others who just were acquitted and were declared in a mistrial. So that's kind of bizarre, isn't it? Garbin is serving six years and three months in a federal prison. Correct. Franks is awaiting sentencing. So both of those guys are probably thinking, why Why did we turn uh, state's evidence and testify against our buddies? Uh, they're getting a walk and I'm in prison. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, I'm sure that's going through their heads. The, the Of course, two of them, because it was a hung jury, there's going to be a retrial for two of them, I'm sure. And um, hopefully, yeah. you know, the prosecutors will have learned a little more uh, about how to, you know, how to guard against this kind of stuff. Um, because, I mean, you know, it, it, it's just, it's pretty clear that, you know, the, I mean, the, most of the trial was spent presenting the evidence. There is almost no, there, there very, there is very little uh, from the defense attorneys in terms of providing counter evidence, pretty much the only one that did, uh, or the only evidence that they presented was testimony from one of the defendants who went up on the stand and, and was actually incredibly arrogant and called on the stand, called the uh, one of the, the, the main uh, informants a, a bitch. And... Um, and you know normally you pay for that <laughs> that right. kind of behavior but instead this jury rewarded them so um this the, i think that that tells me i mean you know the fact that they didn't offer any kind of defense and right <laughs> that well, well this is what extraordinary the, the circumstances were so bad i just think that you know it's pretty obvious that the this jury was pretty heavily predisposed to acquit these guys. Well, and these guys, of course, belong to this Wolverine watchman militia. Yeah. The, le- the ringleader, the Delaware truck driver, Barry Croft Jr., they have him on tape. I'll just read you a little bit of the transcript. His young daughter is standing beside him. Daddy, do you want a Dorito? Little girl's voice asks. Croft, honey, I'm making explosives. Can you get away from me, please? Yeah. I mean, is that normal behavior for a parent? Yeah. And this is the same guy who was planning on blowing up the bridges near Governor Whitmer's summer home so yep. that law enforcement couldn't come and rescue her. This is a part of their plot. So, you know, it's just absolutely astounding how much evidence there was. And, of course, one of the main witnesses was this guy, Dan Chappell, who was an Iraq War veteran. He lost a leg. He's got a titanium leg. He was a former Second Amendment enthusiast. He joined the Wolverine Watchmen and then realized that they were kind of crazy because they wanted to kill police. So that's the schism that I'm interested in. Since you study these right-wing militia movements, David, we learned from the January 6th insurrection that the desperate text messages from the Fox News people, uh, Sean Hannity and and Laura Ingram, who were desperate for Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, to yeah. get Trump to call off the insurgents because the optics looked so bad. So they knew this was bad 
to see yeah. Trump supporters beating up police because, you know, that's bad for the brand uh, that the Republicans are pro-police. <laughs> uh, so you have the same issues here in this trial. So how much are these militia movements torn between those that want this right-wing revolution and these characters that dress up in Kevlar and camo and have assault rifles? And for God, I don't know for the life of me what they're afraid of. Why do you have to arm yourself to the teeth in America? What are you afraid of? Are the Martians going to land? I mean, are your fellow citizens so terrifying? The whole thing is so pathetic. To tell you the truth, they what? I mean, honestly, I think that that all of this stuff is projecting. You know, I think they they project all of their own uh, uh, internal violence and innate hatred onto everybody else, onto their enemies. So yeah. Um, yeah, I think that one of the things that that we certainly saw with with those um, with those protests and, and you know with the, with the attempts to, to turn them back is that is how compartmentalized thinking works uh, because compartmentalized thinking is an essential trait of authoritarian personalities, and that's exactly you know so this is why they can hate police. Or, you know, you know, we back the blue, but, oh, if you try to stop me from getting into the Capitol, I'm going to beat the shit out of you, you know? Um, it's all very, it's all very convenient until you actually, you know, we're all a matter, we love the cops until they try to actually enforce the law against us. We just want them to enforce the law against our enemies, right? And that's what, it, it just reveals how shallow and, uh, and fraudulent their supposed love for law enforcement is they don't love law enforcement they love authoritarianism and you know they they, they don't care they don't want equitable law enforcement they want authoritarian law enforcement and they want donald trump right yeah 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 and you know these are um the, the, this is authoritarian personalities on display because uh, that's definitely what we saw on January 6th, um, you know, all of, all of the traits of authoritarian personalities, the the willingness to um, attack um, any institution that prevents them from, uh, from supporting their glorious leader. That's, and that's the authoritarian aggression part of it, as well as their authoritarian submission, which was their absolute adulation of uh, uh, Donald Trump. There are three actual components, three main components of uh, authoritarian personalities, three uh, sort of central traits. Uh, one, the first is authoritarian submission, the, the you know willingness and desire to submit to the rule of a, a singular authoritarian leader, but he has to be legitimate in their eyes. And then second is authoritarian aggression that's directed against anyone who fails to submit or um, might actually, you know, anybody who tries to uh, rule non-authoritarian style, that is like Barack Obama. And then third is the belief that they represent the real America, that it's called conventionalism, They're the the belief that they represent the real the, the real mainstream of their society, and those three traits create a, a real uh, uh, a broad array of 
sort of uh, secondary traits that include compartmentalized thinking, uh, eagerness to consume conspiracy theories, and an extremely high tolerance for, if not actual acceptance and involvement in uh, bigoted and uh, prejudiced speech and, and attitudes and beliefs. Um, and then, of course, you know, finally, a willingness to engage in violence um, to support these beliefs. These are all traits that, you know, that as psychologists have, have studied about authoritarian personalities for decades. And, you know, we're, we're seeing them really come to the surface. Well, just in closing, though, I mean, if you make threats against the president of the United States, the Secret Service would come down on you like a ton of bricks. But here you are threatening to kidnap and murder the governor of Michigan. And prior to that, they, these militias stormed the Michigan Capitol. They threatened the entire all of the lawmakers. They showed up in front of Gretchen Whitmer's house, heavily armed, and threatened her and her family already. This is before this trial. And there just doesn't seem to be any mechanism to protect people like Governor Whitmer and people like regular folks who uh, on the canvassing boards of elections, on school boards, are being threatened by these same right-wing Trumpsters and militia yeah. people, they, get, they have no protection. I mean, in fact, what Governor Whitmer released in a statement, she suggests that um, there's a, a rising menace in this country. Yeah. I'll, I'll quote what she said. Today, Michiganders and Americans, especially our children, are living through the normalization of political violence. Yeah. The plot to kidnap and kill a governor may seem like an anomaly, but we must be honest about what it really is, the result of violent, divisive rhetoric that is all too common across our country. There must be accountability and consequences for those who commit heinous crimes. Without accountability, extremists will be emboldened. Well, there you have it. I, I And I think she's right. Not only that, I, I, I do think that you know, I mean, Americans don't take this stuff seriously. And I should add, American media doesn't take this stuff seriously. They've never taken these people seriously. Whereas, you know, I mean, for 30 years, I've been hanging out in their <laughs> chat rooms and going to their meetings and stuff like that. I can tell you that this kind of talk, this kind of seditionist talk that we that certainly fueled January 6th and was very much the talk that these guys in Michigan were engaging in, uh, this this anti-government hate talk where we're gonna hang them, we're gonna you know we're gonna get, we're gonna drag these government officials through the streets. And it's extremely common. It's become extremely common over the last thirty years, and that's because there's been a real tolerance of it by law enforcement. Because this kind of talk is illegal, particularly when you start talking about assassinating public officials, um, and uh, and yet it's become incredibly common. And at the same time, um, you know, if you write about this stuff, you t if you talk about it, as, I can tell you as a journalist who's been writing about this stuff, I can't tell you how many editors and publishers and producers have, you know, said, oh, you're just, you're being alarmist, you're just overhyping this threat and so on and so forth. And then, you know, uh, I don't think... You know, and eventually that filters down to to juries <laughs> refusing to convict these guys, you know, mm. because these attitudes get re permeated throughout the culture. And um, I don't think they're going to take it seriously until they actually 
you know, kidnap and kill a governor. And even then, what's going to happen is that Fox News is going to pile in and gaslight us for the next three months about what actually happened. Right. And well, they did that with the with the kid so in uh, it's, it's Wisconsin. Just, he shot his protesters and made a hero out of him. Yeah. I, I thank you for joining us, David. I'm trying to be running out of time, but I really appreciate you joining us here today. Any old time, Ian, give me a call. I will. And All again, right. I've been speaking with David Nywert, who's an award-winning journalist, author, and an expert on American right-wing extremism, whose books include The Eliminationists, How Hate Talk Radicalized the American Right, and Alt America, The Rise of the Radical Right in the Age of Trump. And his latest book is Red Pill, Blue Pill, How to Counteract the Conspiracy Theories That Are Killing Us. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in One more light goes out in the